Good evening. Welcome to the Fort Lauderdale Primary Purpose Big Book Study Group's Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Uh, we're going to have Joey come up and do a joke. Where'd Joey go? I did not use the grapevine. Tom, yeah, Tom. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, all right. So here we go. Here's um, a joke for all you Midwesterners out there. A weasel walks into a bar. The bartender says, wow, I've never seen a weasel before. What can I get you? Pop, goes the weasel. <laughs> <laughs> get, off, get off the stage. <laughs> All right. Yeah, give him a hand. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Oh, actually, I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Ryan. Uh, thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise uh, or that will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Uh, so if everybody's ready, we're going to turn the lights down and start the meditation. <laughs>
uh, we're going to do the fog light prayer. If you don't know it, uh, you can just follow along up here. God, let your love shine like a fog light so those who are lost, sick, and dying can find your love through me. Amen. All right, there is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news that this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Kelly to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. So we're going to bring Kelly up. Hey, Kelly. My breath for this one. Spiritual experience. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety, because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our, most religious, our, more, re, <laughs> our more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. Uh, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so just set your phones to airplane mode or just turn them off. Um, tonight we've got Tom coming up for his eighth session, right? Eighth session. Um, it's been 
fire up until this point, so I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say tonight. So I'm going to bring up Tom. My name's Tom. I'm an alcoholic. Before, uh, that joke was good, so I, I, I like that. Pop goes the weasel. Yeah, that's right. I wanted to uh, read something. Uh, I talked about this before, that uh, I was a, uh, for many years, an Alcoholics Anonymous believe that if I had let me put my hat on here so I can see see what, see your faces see your beautiful shining faces you know see your eyes that's what I can't see with that light in my eyes I can't see your eyes and I don't feel like I'm making a connection with the people I'm talking to if I can't look in your eyes I was one of those people in Alcoholics Anonymous for years who thought that uh, you worked one through nine and that was it. Like all of a sudden you graduate after you work one through nine. You don't need to revisit that anymore. Now you got what the many people in Alcoholics Anonymous would call the maintenance steps or the living steps as if, as if you don't live one through nine anymore. And after about 18 years of sobriety, I was introduced to a, a man through recordings because he was already dead. He died in 1997. Uh, he got sober when I was born in 1952. Uh, he was uh, from Cleveland originally, but he was in Los Angeles. His sponsor gave him $500 to after he was sober a few years in Cleveland to move to Los Angeles because his wife needed a drier climate. And after being sober three and a half years, she passed away anyway. He was an old biker. He was just an old honky-tonker like me and barroom brawler. And, and he would say that he was the same man sober as he was drunk. He didn't realize until after he'd been sober a couple of years. And uh, his sponsee was who introduced me to him. And it changed my whole way of looking at the steps. Because he talked about steps through application. All the steps. One through twelve. It takes one to get to two, it takes two to get to three, it takes three to get to four. They're in an order for a reason. And they build upon each other, these steps. And he, uh, he talked a lot. He started a, a meeting in Beverly Hills called uh, Prime Time Is Now. They have their own website, primetimeisnow.com. If you ever want to go in there and go in the library, a lot of uh, his uh, tapes that he uh, spoke all over Southern California and uh, did, led a lot of retreats. Bob Anderson was his name. He wrote this book called The Mind-Powered Disease, 
which you can find on Amazon if you're interested. And uh, I just wanted to uh, take something that he talked about in step uh, seven before I go on to step eight. Because I was talking about this before. Uh, his group, uh, Primetime, uh, you'll find there a man who was a psychiatrist back in the 40s who was a good friend of Bill's. His name was Dr. Harry Tebow. And Dr. Tebow uh, learned a lot about alcoholism through us. And he, uh, he wrote papers. They're called the Tebow Papers. They're all about your ego. Because my ego ain't my amigo. This is the problem with the alcoholic. We learn that, you know, from the work that we've done up to now. That what are my, you know, what are my defects? You know, I'm, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Because I'm full of self-condemnation, you know. Deep inside of me, I'm always telling me that I'm no good, that I'm worthless, that I won't measure up, that I'm a loser, blah, 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 blah. The committee is going all the time in the head, talking to me, telling me stories. They're telling me stories, this committee. This committee's always talking to me, telling me stories, telling me all about yesterday, talking to me all about the way tomorrow's going to be. Yak, 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 yak. Will you shut up? I gotta shut this this mind up, you know. This is why Bob talked about this. This is a mind-powered disease. It's powered by my mind. And and because my disease, like the big book talks about, is centered in my mind, I think that I can go to my mind as the authority for my life. And all that is is my ego. And even though I get humiliated by alcoholism, I get beat down by alcoholism, you know, I want to try to uh, uh, stop this. I'm tired of this life. I don't want to keep allowing this alcoholism to abuse my life. And so I'm going to quit. And so I quit, and I'm really gung-ho. I'm really gung-ho when I first get here. I did this for, see, I'm talking out of experience, okay? So I'm coming to you with my experience, strength, and hope. This isn't something I learned out of a book. I'm not a preacher. I'm not preaching to you. I'm sober 38 years, and I'm very enthusiastic about my sobriety. Because my sobriety, I treat on a daily basis. My sobriety must be treated in the day that I'm in. All that matters is the day I'm in. I was telling the, uh, Zach after, outside, we're all newcomers. Yeah, I'm sober 38 years, but I'm a newcomer. Because I wake up every morning with untreated alcoholism. And I have to treat my alcoholism. Yesterday's sobriety is not keeping me sober today. Okay? Yesterday's booze ain't getting me drunk today. What I do today to stay sober is what counts. I have to ask myself, what are you willing, willingness? This willingness is huge. This willingness is something that we, that these steps constantly talk about a willingness. We can, 
You know, you're, you're told, we're told, you know, that we're self-will run riot. Yeah, but what's the will that we're using? You see, the will that I was use, always using, we were talking about in the sixth and the seventh step, is pleasure in myself. That's what I used my will for. I used my will constantly seeking outside things to fix the inside. Like my, my sponsor, George, is very fond of saying, when the interior is inferior, we fix up the exterior. So we get sober and we want to go to the gym and get all pumped up, you know, and get muscular and get looking good. Get our, the girls want to go get their hair fixed, get their nails done, you know, get a new dress to wear. Let's start making ourselves feel good. And it works for a little while. Till the next thing. Till we start listening to the committee talk, talk to us again, telling us, well, we need this and we need that. And we, and what do I do? I did, I did this for years. I just kept stuffing this hole I had in me with people, places, and things, and drugs and alcohol. And I didn't learn that the hole, it doesn't matter how much you put in that hole, it, it can't be filled. It's not going to be filled. More. I got the disease of more. I just want more all the time. If I get this toy, if I get that toy... Everything's going to be okay. If I get that girl, if I get that place to live, if I get that job. So we practiced willingness along those lines the wrong way because it didn't work. It was just a temporary fix. So we need to practice a willingness in the correct way, which is seeking God's will for us. You know, we think we don't know what God's will is. Well, we know what God's will is. We all know that. We all know that God just wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. And he has a plan for us. And if we'd just follow the plan, we'd be okay. Tell you what, stop being a liar, a cheat, and a thief. Stop controlling and manipulating. Stop trying to have your way in everything. It doesn't work too well. And what we do... And what Tebow, what Harry Tebow was talking about, he was talking about surrender versus compliance in alcoholism. A guy asked Bob a question. This is in, in, in some of his uh, interviews and in his uh, retreats. The guy says, I practice step seven a lot, not because I truly want to, but because I, I know I'll die if I don't. Am I missing the mark by practicing this step because I have to instead of because I want to? Bob says, in a sense, yeah. I had to find this out for myself, but I did get some help from Dr. Tebow in his surrender versus compliance. I do things for different reasons. I do some things for favors. I do some things under protest. I do some things to gain something. So I had to learn the difference between compliance and surrender. Now, this word surrender is a big word, but it's an important part of the program. I didn't know the meaning of the word when I first got to the program. I thought it was about giving up. So if you're getting whipped, you better surrender. You better quit. So I thought surrendering meant quitting. 
Surrendering in that sense just left me high and dry with nothing. It meant I ended something, that's all. Now, in the sense that the program uses the word, surrendering is an ending, but it's also a beginning. Surrendering is about ending your old self and bringing a new self, a new program of recovery, a new character. You end the old way of life, the old way of thinking, acting, being, and you begin a new way of life. Before the program, I associated surrendering with having a yellow streak. If you surrendered, I thought you were less of a man. So I thought, I'll never surrender. I'm not going to give this up. I'll make it work some way. Well, then I got to the point where I would do it, but under protest. In other words, I complied. I complied for years. Every time I got in a jackpot, I complied. I ran to Alcoholics Anonymous. I told everybody, I'm going to be a good boy now. I'm going to do the right thing. You know, lay off of me. Leave me alone. Quit bothering me. I'll behave. And that's what I thought. I thought it was about, all I was doing was playing a game. All I was doing was manipulating people to get what I wanted. Was for you to leave me alone. And then as soon as I got on my own and got out of trouble and got out of the jackpot, and got all my crap back that I lost from my drinking, I got right back to doing what I wanted to do. That's compliance. That's not surrender. That's just compliance to get what you want. Because you're still running your life. You still got a first step problem. You don't understand that your life being unmanageable means your thinking doesn't work, that you're using a mind that's warped. A mind that has a disease in it, a mind-powered disease that you go to as the authority for your life, and it lies to you. It lies to you. It tells you all kinds of stories. It tells you, you know what you need. And I don't know what I need. What human being is capable of knowing what they need? All any human being is capable of knowing is what they want, what they desire. This is a difference, you know, between this sixth and the seventh step. The sixth step is stuff that I do that I, I shouldn't do from defects. And the seventh step is the things I should do that I don't do. My shortcomings, by practicing a new way of life, by building a new character. Well, then I got to the point where I could, I would do it, but under protest. In other words, I complied. I didn't want to do what the program told me to do, but I had to do it. I did it, but I felt like you made me do it. So you forced me into doing something, right? But me and my character didn't really change. I was still the old character. I found out through Dr. Tebow that if I comply, I'm not surrendering. And I need to surrender to really change. 
So compliance gets in my way. Compliance stops me from surrendering and really changing. Compliance lets me go ahead and do my own thing. So we want to change. I don't know. I wanted to change. I finally got tired of it. I finally learned, you know, that doing things my own way didn't work and did nothing but get me drunk. And I spent 10 years of doing that. And so when I come here and I ask a man to sponsor me, you know, right away I start judging him. Just like I do everybody. I come in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I listen to every one of you, you know, and I'm judging you and I'm saying, oh, this guy's a creep and that girl's a B.I., you know, and blah, blah, blah. My brain's always talking to me all the time because that's what I got. I got a talking disease. It talks to me. Tells me all about you. <laughs> tells me all about me. And I sit around picking every one of you apart. That's what I've done my whole life. Because I, my life is full of anger and full of resentment. I come here, I had, I had no emotion but, but hate. By the time I finally got here after 10 years of being in the revolving door, Alcoholics Anonymous, my life was nothing but hate. I got sicker and sicker and sicker. I became very spiritually sick man. I was homicidal. I would kill you. I didn't care. I've been in and out of jails for years, stockades for years. I didn't care. I was insane. Totally insane. And I needed, I needed to develop a new character. But what happened to me is I finally grasped the first step 100% by knowing that I was insane. How can I go to the second step if I don't believe it? Why would I need to be restored to sanity if I don't think that I have an insanity? Why would I need a power greater than myself if I thought I was a power greater than my alcoholism? Because that's what I thought for years, that I was a power greater than my alcoholism, that I could manage it, that I could control it. How many years did I try to do that? Never worked. Never. In the end, my great idea to control blackouts just keep hitting myself up with cocaine. If I had enough cocaine to hit myself up with, maybe I'd stop the blackouts from happening. I could drink all I wanted. That's insane. Really insane. Why would I need a why would I need this God? You know? My sponsor he always says, I got good news for you and I got bad news for you. Well, the good news is this is all about God. And the bad news for you, I'm sorry, it's all about God. If you don't like that, I'm sorry. But this is a God program. Even the big book tells you, you'll come to call him God. You'd have to call him God right now. I didn't believe. I didn't believe the prayer was going to work. But the man asked me, how'd your way work for you for 10 years? And I had to admit I had a track record that showed my way didn't work. And he told me, well, I guess it doesn't make any difference what you believe in then, does it? Because what you believe in hasn't worked for you, has it? And I had to admit, 
you're right, it hasn't. So he said, you know what, I'm not asking you to believe. This isn't about what you're going to believe. This is about what are you willing. Hear that word again? This is about what are you willing to do. Are you willing to just do it and try it and try to be sincere? I say, I can do that. I can do that. I'm ready to do it. I'm I'm ready because I surrender. I'm not complying anymore. I surrender. And I'll do whatever you want me to do. Because I believe now, one thing's for sure, my way hasn't worked. My way hasn't kept me sober. My way's done nothing but ruin my life because I've listened to me. And so now, the eight step asked me again, am I going to be willing to make amends? Am I? Am I going to be willing to make these amends? So I go to this man who has helped me, this wonderful man who's helped me through seven steps. And I think, well, you know, I've done a lot. I really worked hard. But this looks pretty easy. All I got to do is make a list, right? I says, okay, Tommy. I says, I, I got, I'm ready, man, ready to make that list. He says, oh, hang on there, buddy. Hang on. I want you to do something else first. And I said, what? He said, well, I want you to make a list of all the people that owe amends to you. And I said, well, that's not what the step says. <laughs> and he says, who's the sponsor? And I says, you are. He said, that's right. Then you're willing to do things the way I suggest, right? I said, yeah, I've been willing to do that. I've been willing to do things the way you suggest. And so what do I do? I sit down, like he taught me with the four-step. And I did a very thorough four-step. I thought that four-step was good. I thought it covered all those resentments and everything. You would be amazed at how many people I resented. How many people I still hated. How many people I figured needed to... To, to say they were sorry to me. Because, yeah, I've been harmed. And don't you know I had a right to harm people? Those people that were on there? I had a right to harm them. They'd harm me. I was an eye-for-an-eye eye guy. You'd done something to me, I was going to get even. You done something to me, if I had to hide in the dark and wait for you to come out, I'd beat you with a baseball bat. Pearl Harbor you. That's what we called it, Pearl Harbor and you. You know, surprise attack. Figured I had a right to it. See? And so I took that list to him and he said, okay. He said, you see, the thing here is all about forgiveness. You want to be forgiven, don't you? Isn't that what this is about, that you want to be forgiven? God forgives you. Who are you not to forgive others? God loves you unconditionally. He loves you unconditionally. 
He doesn't care anything about that. My God's not going to put me in hell. Hell. I was already in hell. AA unlocked the gates of hell and let me out. See, for me, it's, it's not about the hereafter. It's about the here and now. You can choose to make your own hell to live in. Great Catholic mystic named St. Teresa Lazo. they once asked her, they said, do you believe in hell? She says, yeah, but Jesus told me there's nobody there. I don't need a God that condemns people to eternity and fire. That's not my God. I got rid of the punishing God. I got a loving God. He loves and forgives everybody. Don't ask me about what happens afterwards, but I know that my God wouldn't do that. Not mine. But my God wants me to love and forgive. Say, believe in the God of love. He loves me and he loves you. And if he loves me, why shouldn't I love you? What, am I better than you? Better than God? If God forgives me, why wouldn't I forgive myself? Why do I keep beating myself up, telling myself I'm unworthy? Why do I have this loathing feeling? Because I have alcoholism. I have alcoholism. Alcoholism does that to me. People don't do that to me. A lady once said in a meeting, she said, you know, people don't do things to you. People just do things. I used to think they did it to me. They do it to everybody. <laughs> they ain't just doing it to me. It's what they do. It's what I did. It's the way I was. I went around like a beast, mad at everybody. Bob Anderson talks about being ready for Freddy, always ready for Freddy. A big chip on my shoulder, just wanting somebody to knock it off. That's the kind of person I was. Who wanted to be around me? Angry and aggressive, mad all the time, hating everybody looking down my nose at people so I can feel better about myself. I was a total low-bottom snob in AA. That's right. You know what a low-bottom snob is? That's a guy like me who come from the bottom who thinks you people that live over there in those big houses, you can't possibly have it like I got it. You can't have alcoholism like I got it. Years ago when... Uh, the 12-step house used to be down here on Las Olas, and that wasn't a nice neighborhood in those days, back in the 70s, in the early 70s. That was Skid Row in those days. And that's where the 12-step house used to be. I used to hang out with a little guy named Horrigan, and he was, he was about half a midget, a little short guy. He'd been a carny his whole life. Real stumpy fingers. He liked to smoke big cigars. And we'd go up to the strip. He liked to go up to the strip, have a slice of pizza. 
And we have to walk across the bridge, you know, and we get over in this, these nice neighborhoods, and we're walking through there with all the big mansions and everything. And he stops there in front of the mansion, and he says, Tommy. Tommy Horgan was his name. I says, yeah. He says, you see these big fancy houses? I says, yeah. He says, there's people living in these houses that are living on Skid Row. I said, what in the hell are you talking about? These rich, you know, because I hated rich people. One of the biggest resentments I had was towards rich people and all their money. What are you talking about living on Skid Row? Look at the way they live. He said, Tommy, the Skid Row they're living on is in their mind. They're living on a Skid Row in their mind. Do I want to get along with the rest of the world? Do I want to keep living like that? At war with the world? I was at war with the world. I needed forgiveness. And I needed to learn how to forgive. It says in the, in the 12 and 12, in step 8, it talks about this. You know, there'll be people who'll tell you, oh, well, you know, you know. Because I'm going to tell you, there were a lot of people that talked about my sponsor. You know, I'm not one of these right way, wrong way guys. I share my experience, strength, and hope. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you my way is the right way. I don't know what the right way is for you. You got to find a way. That's what I was told. You got to find some way to do these things. Because if you don't find some way to do it, you're not going to build a new character. And I never wanted Alcoholics Anonymous about being, being about building a new character. I just wanted it to be about not drinking anymore and getting out of trouble. But they told me, and I finally got into me, that, Tom, if you don't change the guy that brought you in here, that's the guy that keeps taking you back out. You need to change that guy. You need to build a new character. And that's why I became willing. I became willing to work with this man. This man told me he spent nine months going to Bark, learning the steps every week. And I thought anybody is crazy enough to go someplace for nine months learning the steps. That's the guy I need to teach me because I never worked no steps. I never done nothing. The program they did at Bark in those days was called AWOL, the AWOL program. And many long, long term people that have been sober for a long time been to the AWOL program. Bark stopped doing it years ago. And people used to say to me, oh, he wants you doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I'd fire him. I'd get rid of him. Well, I'm still sober 38 years. He's sober 44 years. Okay? And all them people that used to say that, I stopped seeing them a long time ago. I haven't seen them in a long time. The 12 and 12 talks about it. It's not that it's, it's something that the program doesn't do. Here on page 78 it says, these obstacles, talks about obstacles in our way of making a list of the people we owe amends to. These obstacles, however, are very real. The first and one of the most difficult has to do with forgiveness. The moment we ponder a twisted or broken relationship with another person, our emotions go on the defensive. To escape looking at the wrongs we have done another. We resentfully focus on the wrong he has done us. 
This is especially true if he has, in fact, behaved badly at all. Triumphantly, we seize upon his misbehavior as the perfect excuse for minimizing or forgetting our own. So I guess I have to forgive them all. If I want it. A little bit further down the page it says, if we are now about to ask for, for forgiveness for ourselves, why shouldn't we start out by forgiving them, one and all? There's a lot of implications of this eight step. A lot more than just it's a list. Because every step in its application is putting me into a new way of life. It's showing me how I need to live. I don't need to be a person that's constantly full of justifiable anger all the time. What good does it do me? Why do I want to go around all full of hate and anger and pointing my finger at people and blaming everything for the way I feel on everybody else? You know, I needed treatment, and it's okay. It's okay to, to get therapy. It's okay to get outside help. Outside help and therapy helped me to see myself, to see, you know, uh, how sick I was, how much I wanted to blame everybody else for everything. We all suffer from codependency. If, I'm, if you're an alcoholic like me, you're a codependent. This is a control problem. That's what alcoholism is. It's a control problem. We think that if we can control everybody, then we can feel okay. If everybody just do what we want them to do, people talk to us the way we want them to talk to us. No, I had to learn that you're not responsible for the way I feel. I'm responsible for the way I feel. And I'm not responsible for the way you feel. You are. I'm responsible to do the right thing, to treat you right, to show you love, kindness, tolerance. Tolerance? What did I know about tolerance? I knew nothing about tolerance. My sponsor said to me, he goes, you know what, Tom, you need to practice tolerance. I said, I don't even know what that word means. He said, well, I'll tell you what it means. Tolerance is a form of charity. And you're not a very charitable SOB. And I wasn't. There was no tolerance in me. Father John Doe, in, in, in his uh, writings, you know what he calls tolerance? The minimum of love. The minimum of love. Tolerance and charity are love. But I didn't know how to love. I didn't know how to love. One of the reasons I didn't know how to love is because I didn't know how to forgive. I had no tolerance. I had no charity. I was mean. Mean and arrogant and agnostic. And I would jump down your throat with both boots to prove you were wrong and I was right. Because that's all that mattered to me was that you were wrong and I was right. And the old-timers in AA would slap me on the back, and they'd say, it's okay, Tom. 
you got a right to be wrong. And I used to think, what in the heck? What do they mean by that? What kind of thing is that to say to a man he's got a right to be wrong? Because in me, I didn't think I had a right to be wrong. I had to be right, and you had to be wrong. That's ego. That's the disease of alcoholism talking to me. That's where the egomaniac comes in because of his inferiority complex. He has to create this character, and that's what I did. I built this character. Now I come here, I become willing to change this character. I have to build a new character. I have to build a new character. That's what this is about. It's about me building a new character. This, you know, I'll tell you a little story about my father. My father was an adult child of an alcoholic. My father used to see his father sleeping in doorways on Skid Row. My old Irish grandma, she wouldn't divorce him because they didn't believe in divorce. My sister, who's sober 39 years, I'm sober 38, I took her to her first meeting and I went and got drunk. That's why she's got a year more than me. We'd sit my father down, who was a rageaholic. He raged his whole life. His mind was always full of rage all the time. We tried to explain to him that alcoholism is a family disease. Alcohol affects the children of, of alcoholics. My dad was a teetotaler. A six-pack could sit in the refrigerator for a month or two months. But he had every ism of alcoholism. He just didn't have the drinking. Because he was an adult child of an alcoholic. Untreated. Untreated. We used to sit and we'd tell him, Dad... Don't you understand that alcoholism is a family disease? And he'd say, my, my father's drinking didn't affect me because mother wouldn't allow him home if he was drinking. Can you, can you see the, 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 the delusion involved in that? You see your father sleeping in doorways. Kids make fun of you about your drunken old man. And then you're going to sit there and tell me that it doesn't affect you. Because she didn't allow him home if he was drinking. Because he was a periodic. Had a barber shop. And he'd get where he just couldn't stand it anymore. And he'd lock the barber shop up and just go straight down to Skid Row and stay there for a couple of months and stay drunk. He sobered up. He could come home. But nobody talked to him. Nobody spoke to him. Because they hated him. He stayed sober the last seven years of his life. And when he died, my father told me he went to the grave. He used to get up in the morning for the last seven years of his life, leave the house, come home at dinner time, listen to the radio, go to bed. Nobody ever spoke to him. Six days a week. Sunday, just sit there and listen to the radio. Nobody in the family talked to him. When my father went to the grave, the town librarian was there, and he said, I didn't know you knew my father. She said, oh, yeah, I knew him real well. He read almost every book on the shelf. That's where he was going to stay sober, because he didn't have this. He didn't have Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody even knew, because they hated him. 
And my father hated him till the day he died at 91. He never forgave him. He used to come to me when he got old, and he'd sit in a chair and he'd talk to me. And he'd say things to me like, my mother, she took care of all of us during the Depression on $12 a week. She'd give me a dollar a day to buy the groceries for the family. And I'd see him sneaking in the house in the middle of the night, drunk, and putting his money in the register in the floor to hide it so he wouldn't have to pay for anything because he liked to gamble and drink all the time. How would you feel? How would you feel? I'd say, yeah, I know how you feel. But don't you understand that you'd be free if you would forgive him, that it would free you of this? And he'd look at me and he'd say, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Who wants that on their heart? I don't want that on my heart. I wished so many times that I could have helped him to see that. But he wasn't going to see it. He spent his whole life nursing that, nursing that resentment and that hate. And a lot of things happened to us. Lots of things happened to us. Here's a story that uh, Bob tells in his book. A lady says, uh, was talking to Bob. She says, when I took my fourth step, I looked at how I was raped when I was eight years old. Growing up, I was always angry at the males around me. Now each time I get married, I won't even let my husband touch me. For me, my defects of character come from that episode. Why do we want to live with that? Bob says, let's start all over again. I start by building a new character. To do this, I have to live in the day I'm in. If I had to go through the day thinking about something that happened to me a long time ago, I'd have to get drunk or shoot myself. Every solitary one of us has a track record that we could use to excuse our behavior. But this program is based on a different concept. Recovery is about the 12 steps. A program of recovery for every alcoholic with alcoholism, regardless of what happened to them in the past. Certainly, you have to identify your defects. That's what the step is about. But if the step were about uncovering memories that you could dwell on, this wouldn't be a program of recovery. That's not what it's about, uncovering memories that you can dwell on. Each one of us would wind up trying to recall all the harms and hurts that have happened to us. How could we live today with our minds so occupied by the ratty things that happened yesterday? We'd never make it. One of my sponsors who helped me a great deal told me, he said, you know what, Tom, you don't stand a chance of changing until you get rid of your victim story. 
the victim story has to go. There has to be recovery from this. That's why we have to bring this shit out and get rid of it. We can't keep allowing it to fester in us. I know this is a hard message to hear. I know I repeat myself, but this message has got to be heard. Think about it. Does it make sense that there is something so awful in your life that you can never get rid of it? What kind of God would condemn you to live with this terrible thing for the rest of your life? Maybe there is something that you can't get rid of on your own, but I believe in a higher power that can do it for me, what I can't do for myself. That's why these steps are in the order they're in. Certainly there are tragedies. All of us have a list of troubles. I have mine, but I can't live in those tragedies and troubles. This is today's life. This is the life in which God says, under his grace, I can be happy, joyous, and free. I don't have to be bitter about something that happened to me in the past, whether it was yesterday or many years ago. I don't have to keep living with that. It's not your fault. Don't blame yourself. It happened. Do we want to keep it happening? Do we want to be like my dad, who went to his grave at 91, reliving his father's alcoholism over and over again every day for his whole life? If we don't get rid of these things, we'll get drunk. If we don't forgive, even, even, I know a lot, I'm a veteran. I know a lot of Vietnam veterans that had terrible PTSD. You know what a lot of them did to get rid of it? They went back to Vietnam. They worked with orphans and disabled people. This practice, this love that, that, I'm talking about this charity Father John Doe talks about he says in in his chapter on charity his essay on charity really tells a story he says one time a very rich man was visiting a leper colony in Louisiana seeing the nuns caring for the lepers binding their wounds and cleansing the filth of their disease and all of this with a smile he was so amazed that he told one of the nuns later later on that he would not do that for a million dollars. And she said, neither would I. Neither would I. This is, this is this, what's so special about Alcoholics Anonymous. We solve all of this by what we give away. You don't get to take it with you when you go. The only things you get to take with you are the things that you give away. I believe in the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. 
Every man is my brother and every woman's my sister. John Doe talks about, he says, all men are our brothers under one common father who is God. It will not make any difference whether they are black or white, whether they are Christian, pagan or Jew, whether they are rich or poor, whether they are learned or ignorant, whether they are Protestant or Catholic, whether they are a success in life or a failure, whether they are drunk or sober, whether they are slipping or staying on the program, no longer would there be unjust criticism, intolerance, bigotry, prejudice, dissensions, group or otherwise, rash judgment, contentions. Love would cause all friction to vanish. For if we loved our neighbors as ourselves, we certainly would harbor no attitude nor take any action against any of our fellow men that we would not take against ourselves. Jimi Hendrix once said, when we finally get rid of the love of power, maybe then we'll have be ruled by the power of love. It sounds a lot. Thanks for letting me share tonight. All right, let's thank Tom again. We're going to have James come up for our secretary's report. Hello, my name is James, and I'm your recovered alcoholic secretary. Thank you. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. I've asked Gloria to read the recovered statement. We read this notice to explain why many people in this group identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. Gloria? Okay. Um, hi, I'm Gloria. I'm recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered, but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The alcoholic reaction to al- the allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for a lifetime, but we will have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind rather than in the body. We are now seeing where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Thank you, Gloria. 1940s-style big book sponsorship from forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe, and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistic above suggests a 75% success rate. Can I get a show of hand of recovered alcoholics out there? Oh, it's like the whole room almost. Um, is there anyone that needs a sponsor that's in here? Anyone? All right. Um, 
please join us Monday nights for the big book study. Um, it's upstairs on the third floor at 7.15. We have CDs, mug, large print, big books, little red books. Actually, we don't have big books right now, so I take that back. Uh, but they're up in the front if you need anything. Um, and we meet here every Thursday at 7.15. See you next week. Awesome. Thanks, James. We have tonight's session and all uh, the past speaker podcasts online for free at alcoholicsandgod.org. And I'd like to invite everybody again to our Monday night big book study. Uh, and those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, you can just line up down the center aisle. Um, also, if you smoke, uh, just make sure you go down to the end of the sidewalk. Uh, the Boy Scouts are here, and they're trying to quit. Um, we're going to go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light. 
song is. God bless. I love you, Mike Chase. Bye. I think you know this one, don't you?
Thank you very much.